0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, Episode 20. In this episode, we have two stories, one by Edward Frederick E. F. Benson, and one by William Hope Hodgson. So, without further ado, let's get to it. E. F. Benson, 1867-1940, was an English novelist, biographer, memoirist, archaeologist, and short story writer, During his career, he was most well-known for his Map and Lucia series, as well as his Dodo series. Today, he is most well-known for his ghost and supernatural stories. The Horror Horn by E. F. Benson For the past ten days, Alhubel had basked in radiant midwinter weather proper to its eminence of over 6,000 feet. From rising to setting the sun, so surprising to those who have hitherto associated it with a pale, tepid plate indistinctly shining through the murky air of England, has blazed its way across the sparkling blue, and every night the serene and windless frost has made the skies sparkle like illuminated diamond dust. Sufficient snow had fallen before Christmas to content the skiers, and the big rink, sprinkled every evening, had given the skaters each morning a fresh surface on which to perform their slippery antics. Bridge and dancing served to while away the greater part of the night, and to me, now for the first time tasting the joys of a winter in the Engadine, it seemed that a new heaven and a new earth had been lighted, warmed and refrigerated for the special benefit of those who, like myself, had been wise enough to save up their days of holiday for the winter. But a break came in these ideal conditions. One afternoon, the sun grew vapor-veiled, and up the valley from the northwest, a wind frozen with miles of travel over ice-bound hillsides began scouting through the calm halls of the heavens. Soon, it grew dusted with snow, first in small flakes driven almost horizontally before its congealing breath and then in larger tufts as of swan's down, And though, all day for a fortnight before, the fate of nations and life and death had seemed to me of far less importance than to get certain tracings of the skate-blades on the ice of proper shape and size, it now seemed that the one paramount consideration was to hurry back to the hotel for shelter. It was wiser to leave rocking turns alone than to be frozen in their quest. I had come out here with my cousin, Professor Ingram, the celebrated physiologist and alpine climber. During the serenity of the last fortnight, he had made a couple of notable winter ascents, but this morning his weather wisdom had mistrusted the signs of the heavens, and instead of attempting the ascent of the Piz Pasug, he had waited to see whether his misgivings justified themselves. So there he sat, now, in the hall of the admirable hotel, with his feet on the hot water pipes, and the latest delivery of the English post in his hands. This contained a pamphlet concerning the result of the Mount Everest expedition, of which he had just finished the perusal when I entered. "'A very interesting report,' he said, passing it to me. "'And they certainly deserve to succeed next year. But who can tell what that final six thousand feet may entail? Six thousand feet more when you have already accomplished twenty-three thousand does not seem much.' but at present no one knows whether the human frame can stand exertion at such a height. It may affect not the lungs and heart only, but possibly the brain. Delirious hallucinations may occur. In fact, if I did not know better, I should have said that one such hallucination had occurred to the climbers already. "'And what was that?' I asked. "'You will find that they thought they came across the tracks of some naked human foot at a great altitude.' that looks at first sight like an hallucination. What more natural, than that a brain excited and exhilarated by the extreme height should have interpreted certain marks in the snow as the footprints of a human being? Every bodily organ at these altitudes is exerting itself to the utmost to do its work, and the brain seizes on those marks in the snow and says, Yes, I'm all right. I'm doing my job and I perceive marks in the snow which, I affirm, are human footprints. You know, even at this altitude, how restless and eager the brain is, how vividly, as you told me, you dream at night. Multiply that stimulus and that consequent eagerness and restlessness by three, and how natural that the brain should harbor illusions. What, after all, is the delirium which often accompanies high fever, "'but the effort of the brain to do its work under the pressure of feverish conditions. "'It is so eager to continue perceiving that it perceives things which have no existence. "'And yet you don't think that these naked human footprints were illusions?' said I. "'You told me you would have thought so if you had not known better.' "'He shifted in his chair and looked out of the window a moment.' The air was thick now with the density of the big snowflakes that were driven along by the squealing northwest gale. Quite so, he said. In all probability, the human footprints were real human footprints. I expect that they were footprints, anyhow, of a being more nearly a man than anything else. My reason for saying so is that I know such beings exist. I have even seen, quite near at hand, and I assure you I did not wish to be nearer in spite of my intense curiosity—the creature, shall we say, which would make such footprints. And, if the snow was not so dense, I could show you the place where I saw him. He pointed straight out of the window, where, across the valley, lies the huge tower of the Ungira horn, with the carved pinnacle of rock at the top like some gigantic rhinoceros horn. On one side only, as I knew— was the mountain practicable, and that for none but the finest climbers. On the other three, a succession of ledges and precipices rendered it unscalable. Two thousand feet of sheer rock form the tower. Below are five hundred feet of fallen boulders, up to the edge of which grow dense woods of larch and pine. Upon the Ungaharahorn? I asked. Yes. Up till twenty years ago it had never been ascended, and I, like several others, spent a lot of time in trying to find a route up it. My guide and I sometimes spent three nights together at the hut beside the Blumen Glacier, prowling around it, and—it was by luck, really—that we found the route, for the mountain looks even more impracticable from the far side than it does from this. But one day we found a long, transverse fissure in the side which led to a negotiable ledge— then there came a slanting ice couloir which you could not see till you got to the foot of it however i need not go into that the big room where we sat was filling up with cheerful groups driven indoors by the sudden gale and snowfall and the cackle of merry tongues grew loud the band too that inveritable appendage of tea-time at swiss resorts had begun to tune up for the usual potpourri from the works of puccini Next moment, the sugary, sentimental melodies began. "'Strange contrast,' said Ingram. "'Here we are, sitting warm and cozy, "'our ears pleasantly tickled with these little baby tunes, "'and outside it is the great storm "'growing more violent every moment, "'and swirling around the austere cliffs of the Ungherahorn, "'the horror horn, as indeed it was to me. "'I want to hear all about it,' I said." Every detail. Make a short story long if it's short. I want to know why it's your horror horn. Well, Canton and I—he was my guide—used to spend days prowling about the cliffs, making a little progress on one side, and then being stopped, and gaining perhaps five hundred feet on another side, and then being confronted by some insuperable obstacle, till the day when, by luck, we found the route— Canton never liked the job, for some reason that I could not fathom. It was not because of the difficulty or danger of the climbing, for he was the most fearless man I had ever met when dealing with rocks and ice, but he was always insistent that we should get off the mountain and back to the Blumen Hut before sunset. He was scarcely easy even when we had got back to the shelter and locked and barred the door, and I well remember one night when, as we ate our supper, we heard some animal, a wolf probably, howling somewhere out in the night. A positive panic seized him, and I don't think he closed his eyes till morning. It struck me then that there might be some grisly legend about the mountain, connected possibly with its name, and next day I asked him why the peak was called the Horror Horn. He put the question off at first, and said that, like the Shrek Horn, its name was due to its precipices and falling stones but when I pressed him further, he acknowledged that there was a legend about it, which his father had told him. There were creatures, so it was supposed, that lived in its caves, things human in shape and covered except for the face and hands, with long black hair. They were dwarfs in size, four feet high or thereabouts, but of prodigious strength and agility, remnants of some wild primeval race." It seemed that they were still in an upward stage of evolution, or so I guessed, for the story ran that sometimes girls had been carried off by them, not as prey, and not for any such fate as those captured by cannibals, but to be bred from. Young men also had been raped by them, to be mated with the females of their tribe. All this looked as if the creatures, as I said, were trending towards humanity. But, naturally, I did not believe a word of it, as applied to the conditions of the present day. Centuries ago, conceivably, there may have been such beings, and, with the extraordinary tenacity of tradition, the news of this had been handed down and was still current around the hearths of the peasants. As for their numbers, Canton told me that three had been seen once together by a man who, owing to his swiftness on skis, had escaped to tell the tale. This man, he averred, was no other than his grandfather, who had been benighted one winter evening as he passed through the dense woods below the Ungherahorn, and Canton supposed that they had been driven down to these lower altitudes in search of food during severe winter weather, for otherwise the recorded sights of them had always taken place among the rocks of the peak itself. They had pursued his grandfather, then a young man, at an extraordinarily swift canter, running sometimes upright as men run, sometimes on all fours in the manner of beasts, and their howls were just such as what we heard that night in the Bloomin' Hut. Such, at any rate, was the story Canton told me, and, like you, I regarded it as the very moonshine of superstition. But the very next day, I had reason to reconsider my judgment about it. It was on that day... After a week of exploration, we hit on the only route at present known to the top of our peak. We started as soon as there was light enough to climb by, for, as you may guess, on very difficult rocks it is impossible to climb by lantern or moonlight. We hit on the long fissure I have spoken of. We explored the ledge which from below seemed to end in nothingness, and with an hour's step-cutting ascended the couloir which led upward from it. From there onwards it was a rock climb, certainly of considerable difficulty, but with no heartbreaking discoveries ahead, and it was about nine in the morning that we stood on the top. We did not wait there long, for that side of the mountain is raked by falling stones, loosened when the sun grows hot from the ice that holds them, and we made haste to pass the ledge where the falls are most frequent. After that there was the long fissure to descend, a matter of no great difficulty, And we were at the end of our work by midday, both of us, as you may imagine, in the state of the highest elation. A long and tiresome scramble among the huge boulders at the foot of the cliff then lay before us. Here the hillside is very porous, and great caves extend far into the mountain. We had unroped at the base of the fissure, and were picking our way as seemed good to either of us among these fallen rocks, many of them bigger than an ordinary house. WHEN, ON COMING AROUND THE CORNER OF ONE OF THESE, I SAW THAT WHICH MADE IT CLEAR THAT THE STORIES CANTON HAD TOLD ME WERE NO FIGMENT OF TRADITIONAL SUPERSTITION. NOT TWENTY YARDS IN FRONT OF ME LAY ONE OF THE BEINGS OF WHICH HE HAD SPOKEN. THERE IT SPRAWLED, NAKED AND BASKING ON ITS BACK, WITH FACE TURNED UP TO THE SUN, WHICH ITS NARROW EYES REGARDED UNWINKING. IN FORM IT WAS COMPLETELY HUMAN. But the growth of hair that covered limbs and trunk alike almost completely hid the sun tanned skin beneath. But its face, save for the down on its cheeks and chin, was hairless, and I looked on a countenance the sensual and malevolent bestiality of which froze me with horror. Had the creature been an animal, one would have felt scarcely a shudder at the gross animalism of it. The horror lay in the fact that it was a man. There lay by it a couple of gnawed bones, and, its meal finished, it was lazily licking its protuberant lips, from which came a purring murmur of content. With one hand it scratched the thick hair on its belly, in the other it held one of these bones, which presently split in half beneath the pressure of its finger and thumb. But my horror was not based on the information of what happened to those men whom the creatures caught. It was due only to my proximity to a thing so human and so infernal. The peak, of which the ascent had a moment ago filled us with such elated satisfaction, became to me a horror horn indeed, for it was the home of beings more awful than the delirium of nightmare could ever have conceived. Canton was a dozen paces behind me, and with a backward wave of my hand I caused him to halt. Then, withdrawing myself with infinite precaution so as not to attract the gaze of that basking creature, I slipped back round the rock, whispered to him what I had seen, and with blanched faces we made a long detour, peering round every corner and crouching low, not knowing that at any step we might not come upon another of these beings, or that from the mouth of one of these caves in the mountainside there might not appear another of those hairless and dreadful faces." with perhaps, this time, the breasts and insignia of womanhood. That would have been the worst of all. Luck favoured us, for we made our way among the boulders and shifting stones, the rattle of which might at any moment have betrayed us, without a repetition of my experience, and once among the trees we ran as if the furies themselves were in pursuit. Well now did I understand, though, I dare say, I cannot convey, the qualms of Canton's mind when he spoke to me of these creatures. Their very humanity was what made them so terrible. The fact that they were of the same race as ourselves, but of a type so abysmally degraded, that the most brutal and inhuman of men could have seemed angelic in comparison. The music of the small band was over before he had finished the narrative, and the chattering groups round the tea-table had dispersed. He paused a moment. There was a horror of the spirit, he said, which I experienced then, from which, I verily believe, I have never entirely recovered. I saw then how terrible a living thing could be, and how terrible, in consequence, was life itself. In us all, I suppose, lurks some inherited germ of that ineffable bestiality, and who knows whether, sterile as it has apparently become in the course of centuries, it might not fructify again. When I saw that creature sun itself, I looked into the abyss out of which we have crawled, and these creatures are trying to crawl out of it now, if they exist any longer. Certainly, for the last twenty years, there has been no record of their being seen, until we come to the story of the footprints seen by the climbers on Everest. If that is authentic, if the party did not mistake the footprint of some bear, Or what not for a human tread, it seems as if still this bestranded remnant of mankind is in existence. Now, Ingram had told his story well, but sitting in this warm and civilized room, the horror which he had clearly felt had not communicated itself to me in any very vivid manner. Intellectually, I agreed, I could appreciate this horror, but certainly my spirit felt no shudder of interior comprehension. But it is odd, I said, that your keen interest in physiology did not disperse your qualms. You were looking, so I take it, at some form of man, more remote, probably, than the earliest human remains. Did not something inside you say, this is of absorbing significance? He shook his head. No, I only wanted to get away, said he. It was not, as I have told you, the terror of what, according to Canton's story, might await us if we were captured. It was sheer horror at the creature itself. I quaked at it. The snowstorm and the gale increased in violence that night, and I slept uneasily, plucked again and again from slumber by the fierce battling of the wind that shook my windows, as if with an imperious demand for admittance. It came in billowy gusts, with strange noises intermingled with it, as, for a moment, it abated, with flutings and moanings that rose to shrieks as the fury of it returned. These noises, no doubt, mingled themselves with my drowsed and sleepy consciousness, and once I tore myself out of nightmare, imagining that the creatures of the horror horn had gained footing on my balcony, and were rattling at the window-bolts. But, before morning, the gale had died away, and I awoke to see the snow falling dense and fast in a windless air. For three days it continued without intermission, and with its cessation there came a frost such as I have never felt before. Fifty degrees were registered one night, and more the next, and what the cold must have been on the cliffs of the Ungherahorn, I cannot imagine. Sufficient, so I thought, to have made an end altogether of its secret inhabitants. My cousin, on that day twenty years ago, had missed an opportunity for study which would probably never fall again either to him or another. I received one morning a letter from a friend saying that he had arrived at the neighboring winter resort of St. Luigi, and proposing that I should come over for a morning's skating and lunch afterwards. THE PLACE WAS NOT MORE THAN A COUPLE OF MILES OFF, IF ONE TOOK THE PATH OVER THE LOW, PINE-CLAD FOOTHILLS, ABOVE WHICH LAY THE STEEP WOODS BELOW THE FIRST ROCKY SLOPES OF THE UNGHERAHORN. AND, ACCORDINGLY, WITH A KNAPSACK CONTAINING SKATES ON MY BACK, I WENT ON skis OVER THE WOODED SLOPES AND DOWN BY AN EASY DESCENT AGAIN ONTO ST. LUIGI. THE DAY WAS OVERCAST. CLOUDS ENTIRELY OBSCURED HIGHER PEAKS, THOUGH THE SUN WAS VISIBLE pale and unluminous, through the mists. But, as the morning went on, it gained the upper hand, and I slid down into St. Luigi beneath a sparkling firmament. We skated and lunched, and then, since it looked as if thick weather was coming up again, I set out early, about three o'clock for my return journey. Hardly had I got into the woods when the clouds gathered thick above me, and streamers and skeins of them began to descend among the pines through which my path threaded its way. In ten minutes more their opacity had so increased that I could hardly see a couple of yards in front of me. Very soon I became aware that I must have got off the path, for snow-cowled shrubs lay directly in my way, and, casting back to find it again, I got altogether confused as to direction. But, though progress was difficult, I knew I had only to keep on the ascent, and presently I should come to the brow of these low foothills and descend into the open valley where Alhubel stood. So on I went, stumbling and sliding over obstacles, and unable, owing to the thickness of the snow, to take off my skis, for I should have sunk over the knees at each step. Still the ascent continued, and looking at my watch, I saw that I had already been near an hour on my way from St. Luigi, a period more than sufficient to complete my whole journey. But still I stuck to my idea that though I had certainly strayed far from my proper route, a few minutes more must surely see me over the top of the upward way, and I should find the ground declining into the next valley. About now, too, I noticed that the mists were growing suffused with rose-color, and though the inference was that it must be close on sunset, there was consolation in the fact that they were there and might lift at any moment and disclose to me my whereabouts. But the fact that night would soon be on me made it needful to bar my mind against that despair of loneliness which so eats out the heart of a man who is lost in woods or on mountainside, that, though still there is plenty of vigour in his limbs, his nervous force is sapped, and he can do no more than lie down and abandon himself to whatever fate may await him. And then I heard that which made the thoughts of loneliness seem bliss indeed, for there was worse fate than loneliness. What I heard resembled the howl of a wolf, and it came not far in front of me where the ridge, was it a ridge? still rose higher in vestments of pines. From behind me came a sudden puff of wind, which shook the frozen snow from the drooping pine branches, and swept away the mists as a broom sweeps the dust from the floor. Radiant above me were the unclouded skies, already charged with the red of sunset, and in front I saw that I had come to the very edge of the wood through which I had wandered so long but it was no valley into which i had penetrated for there right ahead of me rose the steep slope of boulders and rocks soaring upward to the foot of the young what then was that cry of a wolf which had made my heart stand still i saw not twenty yards from me was a fallen tree and leaning against the trunk of it was one of the denizens of the horror horn and it was a woman She was enveloped in a thick growth of hair, gray and tufted, and from her head it streamed down over her shoulders and her bosom, from which hung withered and pendulous breasts. And looking on her face, I comprehended not with my mind alone, but with a shudder of my spirit, what Ingram had felt. Never had nightmare fashioned so terrible a countenance. The beauty of sun and stars, and of the beasts of the field, and the kindly race of men, could not atone for so hellish an incarnation of the spirit of life. A fathomless bestiality mottled the slavering mouth and the narrow eyes. I looked into the abyss itself, and knew that out of that abyss, on the edge of which I leaned, the generations of men had climbed. What if that ledge crumbled in front of me and pitched me headlong into its nethermost depths? In one hand she held by the horns a chamois that kicked and struggled. A blow from its hind leg caught her withered thigh, and with a grunt of anger she seized the leg in her other hand, and, as a man may pull from its sheath a stem of meadow grass, she plucked it from the body, leaving the torn skin hanging round the gaping wound. Then, putting the red, bleeding member to her mouth, she sucked at it as a child sucks a stick of sweetmeat. Through flesh and gristle her short, brown teeth penetrated, and she licked her lips with a sound of purring. Then, dropping the leg by her side, she looked again at the body of the prey, now quivering in its death convulsion, and with finger and thumb gouged out one of its eyes. She snapped her teeth on it, and it crackled like a soft-shelled nut. It must have been but a few seconds that I stood watching her, in some indescribable catalepsy of terror, while, through my brain, there peeled the panic command of my mind to my stricken limbs. Be gone! Be gone! While there is time! Then, recovering the power of my joints and muscles, I tried to slip behind a tree and hide myself from this apparition. But the woman, shall I say, must have caught stir of my movement for she raised her eyes from her living feast and saw me she craned forward her neck and dropped her prey and half rising began to move towards me as she did this she opened her mouth and gave forth a howl such as i may have heard a moment before it was answered by another but faintly and distantly sliding and slipping with the toes of my skis tripping in the obstacles below the snow I plunged forward down the hill between the pine trunks. The low sun, already sinking behind some rampart of the mountain in the west, reddened the snow and the pines with its ultimate rays. My knapsack, with the skates in it, swung to and fro on my back. One ski-stick had already been twitched out of my hand by a fallen branch of pine, but not a second's pause could I allow myself to recover it. I gave no glance behind— AND I KNEW NOT AT WHAT PACE MY PURSUER WAS ON MY TRACK, OR INDEED WHETHER ANY PURSUED AT ALL, FOR MY WHOLE MIND AND ENERGY, NOW WORKING AT FULL POWER AGAIN UNDER THE STRESS OF MY PANIC, WAS DEVOTED TO GETTING AWAY DOWN THE HILL AND OUT OF THE WOOD AS SWIFTLY AS MY LIMBS COULD BEAR ME. FOR A LITTLE WHILE I HEARD NOTHING BUT THE HISSING SNOW OF MY HEADLONG PASSAGE, AND THE rustle OF THE COVERED undergrowth BENEATH MY FEET. And then, from close at hand behind me, once more the wolf-howl sounded, and I heard the plunging of footsteps other than my own. The strap of my knapsack had shifted, and as my skate swung to and fro on my back, it chafed and pressed on my throat, hindering free passage of air of which God knew my laboring lungs were in dire need, and without pausing I slipped it free from my neck and held it in the hand from which my ski-stick had been jerked. I seemed to go a little more easily for this adjustment, and now, not so far distant, I could see below me the path from which I had strayed. If only I could reach that, the smoother going would surely enable me to outdistance my pursuer, who even on the rougher ground was but slowly overhauling me. And at the sight of that ribbon stretching unimpeded downhill, a ray of hope pierced the black panic of my soul. With that came the desire, keen and insistent, to see who or what it was that was on my track, and I spared a backward glance. It was she the hag whom I had seen at her gruesome meal. Her long gray hair flew out behind her. Her mouth chattered and gibbered. Her fingers made grabbing movements as if already they closed on me. But the path was now at hand, and the nearness of it, I suppose, made me incautious. A hump of snow-covered bush lay in my path, and thinking I could jump over it, I tripped and fell, smothering myself in snow. I heard a maniac noise— half-scream, half-laugh, from close behind, and before I could recover myself, the grabbing fingers were at my neck, as if a steel vise had closed there. But my right hand, in which held my knapsack of skates, was free, and with a blind, backhanded movement, I whirled it behind me at the full length of its strap, and knew that my desperate blow had found its billet somewhere." Even before I could look round, I felt the grip on my neck relax, and something subsided into the very bush which had entangled me. I recovered my feet and turned. There she lay, twitching and quivering. The heel of one of my skates, piercing the thin alpaca of the knapsack, had hit her full on the temple, from which the blood was pouring. But a hundred yards away, I could see another such figure coming downwards on my track, leaping and bounding at that panic rose again within me and i sped off down the white smooth path that led to the lights of the village already beckoning never once did i pause in my headlong going there was no safety until i was back among the haunts of men i flung myself against the door of the hotel and screamed for admittance though i had but to turn the handle and enter and once more as when ingram had told his tale there was the sound of the band and the chatter of voices and there too was he himself who looked up and then rose swiftly to his feet as i made my clattering entrance i have seen them too i cried look at my knapsack is there not blood on it it is the blood of one of them a woman a hag who tore off the leg of a chamois as i looked and pursued me through the accursed wood i whether it was i who had spun around or the room which seemed to spin around me, I knew not, but I heard myself falling, collapsed on the floor, and the next time that I was conscious at all I was in bed. There was Ingram there, who told me that I was quite safe, and another man, a stranger, who pricked my arm with the nozzle of the syringe, and reassured me. A day or two later I gave a coherent account of my adventure, and three or four men, armed with guns, went over my traces. They found the bush in which I had stumbled, with a pool of blood which had soaked into the snow, and still following my ski tracks, they came on the body of a chamois from which had been torn one of its hind legs, and one eye socket was empty. That is all the corroboration of my story that I can give the reader, and, for myself, I imagine that the creature which pursued me was either not killed by my blow, or that her fellows removed her body. Anyhow, It is open to the incredulous to prowl about the caves of the Ungherahorn and see if anything occurs that may convince them. This story was first published in the 1912 collection of short stories, The Room in the Tower, and Other Stories. Our second story this evening is by William Hope Hodgson, 1877-1918. to He was an English author. He produced a large body of work including essays, short fiction, and novels. Many of his works draw on his time and experience spent at sea. While apprenticing on ship, he was subject to bullying, which caused him to begin a program of personal training and bodybuilding. According to Sam Moskowitz, the primary motivation of his body development was not health, but self-defense. His relatively short height and sensitive, almost beautiful face made him an irresistible target for bullying seamen. When they moved in to pulverize him, They would learn, too late, that they had come to grips with easily one of the most powerful men, pound for pound, in all England. A Tropical Horror by William Hope Hodgson We are a hundred and thirty days out from Melbourne, and for three weeks we have lain in this sweltering calm. It is midnight, and our watch on deck until four a.m. I go out and sit on the hatch. A minute later, Jockey, our youngest apprentice, joins me for a chatter. Many are the hours we have sat thus and talked in the night watches, though, to be sure, it is Jockey who does the talking. I am content to smoke and listen, giving an occasional grunt at seasons to show that I am attentive. Jockey has been silent for some time, his head bent in meditation. Suddenly, he looks up, evidently with the intention of making some remark. As he does so, I see his face stiffen with a nameless horror. He crouches back, his eyes staring past me at some unseen fear. Then his mouth opens. He gives forth a strangulated cry and topples backward off the hatch, striking his head against the deck. Fearing I know not what, I turn to look. Great heavens, rising above the bulwarks, seen plainly in the bright moonlight, is a vast, slobbering mouth a fathom across. From the huge, dripping lips hang great tentacles. As I look, the thing comes further over the rail. It is rising, rising higher and higher. There are no eyes visible, only that fearful, slobbering mouth set on the tremendous trunk-like neck, which, even as I watch, is curling inboard in the stealthy celerity of an enormous eel. Over it comes in vast, heaving folds. Will it never end? The ship gives a slow, sullen roll to starboard as she feels the weight. Then, the tail, a broad, flat-shaped mass, slips over the teak rail and falls with a loud slump on the deck. For a few seconds, The hideous creature lies heaped in writhing, slimy coils. Then, with quick, darting movements, the monstrous head travels along the deck. Close by the mainmast stands the harness casks, and alongside of these a freshly opened cask of salt beef with the top loosely replaced. The smell of the meat seems to attract the monster, and I can hear it sniffing with a vast, indrawing breath. THEN THOSE LIPS OPEN, DISPLAYING FOUR HUGE FANGS. THERE IS A QUICK FORWARD MOTION OF THE HEAD, A SUDDEN CRASHING, CRUNCHING SOUND, AND BEEF AND BARREL HAVE DISAPPEARED. THE NOISE BRINGS ONE OF THE ORDINARY SEAMEN OUT OF THE forecastle. COMING INTO THE NIGHT, HE CAN SEE NOTHING FOR A MOMENT. THEN, AS HE GETS FURTHER AFT, HE SEES, AND WITH HORRIFIED CRIES RUSHES FORWARD too late. From the mouth of the thing there flashes forth a long, broad blade of glistening white set with fierce teeth. I avert my eyes, but cannot shut out the sickening glut-glut that follows. The man on the lookout, attracted by the disturbance, has witnessed the tragedy, and flies for refuge into the forecastle, flinging the heavy iron door after him. The carpenter and sailmaker come running out of the half-deck, in their drawers. Seeing the awful thing, they rush aft to the cabin with shouts of fear. The second mate, after one glance over the break of the poop, runs down the companionway with the helmsman after him. I can hear them barring the scuttle, and abruptly I realize that I am on the main deck alone. So far, I have forgotten my own danger. The past few minutes seem like a portion of an awful dream. Now, however, I comprehend my position, and, shaking off the horror that has held me, turn to seek safety. As I do so, my eyes fall upon Jockey, lying huddled and senseless with fright where he has fallen. I cannot leave him there. Close by stands the empty half-deck, a little steel-built house with iron doors. The lee one is hooked open. Once inside, I am safe. Up to the present the thing has seemed to be unconscious of my presence. Now, however, the huge, barrel-like head sways in my direction. Then comes a muffled bellow, and the great tongue flickers in and out as the brute turns and swirls aft to meet me. I know there is not a moment to lose, and picking up the helpless lad I make a run for the open door. It is only distant a few yards, but that awful shape is coming down the deck to me in great wreathing coils. I reach the house and tumble in with my burden, then out on deck again to unhook and close the door. Even as I do so, something white curls around the end of the house. With a bound, I am inside, and the door is shut and bolted. Through the thick glass of the ports, I see the thing sweep round the house in vain search for me. Jockey has not moved yet, so kneeling down, I loosen his shirt collar and sprinkle some water from the breaker over his face. While I am doing this, I hear Morgan shout something. Then comes a great shriek of terror, and again that sickening glut-glut. Jockey stirs uneasily, rubs his eyes, and sits up suddenly. Was that Morgan shouting? He breaks off with a cry. Where are we? I have had such awful dreams. At this instant, there is a sound of running footsteps on the deck, and I hear Morgan's voice at the door. Tom, open! He stops abruptly and gives an awful cry of despair. Then I hear him rush forward. Through the porthole, I see him spring into the fore-rigging and scramble madly aloft. Something steals up after him. It shows white in the moonlight. It wraps itself around his right ankle. Morgan stops dead, plucks out his sheath knife, and hacks fiercely at the fiendish thing. It lets go, and in a second he is over the top and running for dear life up the tagallant rigging. A time of quietness follows, and presently I see that the day is breaking. Not a sound can be heard save the heavy, gasping breathing of the thing as the sun rises higher the creature stretches itself out along the deck and seems to enjoy the warmth still no sound either from the men forward or the officers aft i can only suppose that they are afraid of attracting its attention yet a little later i hear the report of a pistol away aft and looking out i see the serpent raise its huge head as though listening As it does so, I get a good view of the forepart, and in the daylight see what the night has hidden. There, right about the mouth, is a pair of little pig eyes that seem to twinkle with a diabolical intelligence. It is swaying its head slowly from side to side. Then, without warning, it turns quickly and looks right in through the port. I dodge out of sight, but not soon enough. It has seen me, and brings its great mouth up against the glass. I hold my breath. My God, if it breaks the glass! I cower, horrified. From the direction of the port there comes a loud, harsh scraping sound. I shiver. Then I remember that there are little iron doors to shut over the ports in bad weather. Without a moment's waste of time, I rise to my feet and slam the door over the port. Then I go around to the others and do the same. We are now in darkness, and I tell Jockey in a whisper to light the lamp, which, after some fumbling, he does. About an hour before midnight, I fall asleep. I am awakened suddenly some hours later by a scream of agony and the rattle of a water dipper. There is a slight scuffling sound, then that soul-revolting glutt glut I guess what has happened. One of the men forward has slipped out of the forecastle to try and get a little water. Evidently, he is trusted to the darkness to hide his movements. Poor beggar. He is paid for his attempt with his life. After this, I cannot sleep, though the rest of the night passes quietly enough. Towards morning, I doze a bit, but wake every few minutes with a start. Jockey is sleeping peacefully. Indeed, he seems worn out with the terrible strain of the past twenty-four hours. About eight a.m., I call him, and we make a light breakfast off the dry ship's biscuit and water. Of the later, happily, we have a good supply. Jockey seems more himself and starts to talk a little, possibly somewhat louder than is safe. For, as he chatters on, wondering how it will end, there comes a tremendous blow against the side of the house, making it ring again. After this, Jockey is very silent. As we sit there, I cannot but wonder what all the rest are doing, and how the poor beggars forward are faring, cooped up without water, as the tragedy of the night has proved. Towards noon, I hear a loud bang, followed by a terrific bellowing. Then comes a great smashing of woodwork, and the cries of men in pain. Vainly, I ask myself what has happened. I begin to reason. By the sound of the report, it was evidently something much heavier than a rifle or pistol, and judging from the mad roaring of the thing, the shot must have done some execution. On thinking it over further, I become convinced that, By some means, those aft have got hold of the small signal cannon we carry, and though I know that some have been hurt, perhaps killed, yet a feeling of exultation seizes me as I listen to the roars of the thing, and realize that it is badly wounded, perhaps mortally. After a while, however, the bellowing dies away, and only an occasional roar, denoting more of anger than aught else, is heard. Presently, I become aware, by the ship's canting over to starboard, that the creature has gone over to that side, and a great hope springs up within me that possibly it has had enough of us and is going over the rail into the sea. For a time, all is silent and my hope grows stronger. I lean across and nudge Jockey, who is sleeping with his head on the table. He starts up sharply with a loud cry. Hush! I whisper hoarsely. I'm not certain, but I do believe it's gone. Jockey's face brightens wonderfully, and he questions me eagerly. We wait another hour or so, with hope ever rising. Our confidence is returning fast. Not a sound can we hear, not even the breathing of the beast. I get out some biscuits, and Jockey, after rummaging in the locker, produces a small piece of pork and a bottle of ship's vinegar. We fall too with a relish. After our long abstinence from food, the meal acts on us like wine, and what must Jockey do but insist on opening the door to make sure the thing is gone? This I will not allow, telling him that at least it will be safer to open the iron port covers first and have a look out. Jockey argues, but I am immovable. He becomes excited. I believe the youngster is light headed. Then, as I turn to unscrew one of the aftercovers, Jockey makes a dash at the door. Before he can undo the bolts, I have him, and after a short struggle, lead him back to the table. Even as I endeavor to quieten him, there comes at the starboard door, the door that Jockey has tried to open, a sharp, loud sniff-sniff, followed immediately by a thunderous, grunting howl, and a foul stench of putrid breath sweeps in under the door a great trembling takes me, and were it not for the carpenter's tool chest, I should fall. Jockey turns very white, and is violently sick, after which he is seized by a hopeless fit of sobbing. Hour after hour passes, and weary to death, I lie down on the chest upon which I have been sitting, and try to rest. It must be about half-past two in the morning, after a somewhat longer doze, that I am suddenly awakened by a most tremendous uproar away forward. Men's voices, shrieking, cursing, praying, but in spite of the terror expressed, so weak and feeble, while in the midst, and at times broken off short with that hellishly suggestive glut-glut, is the unearthly bellowing of the thing. Fear incarnate seizes me, and I can only fall on my knees and pray. "'Too well I know what is happening. "'Jockey has slept through it all, and I am thankful. "'Presently, under the door, there steals a narrow ribbon of light, "'and I know that the day has broken on the second morning of our imprisonment. "'I let Jockey sleep on. I will let him have peace while he may. "'Time passes, but I take little notice. "'The thing is quiet, probably sleeping.' About midday, I eat a little biscuit and drink some of the water. Jockey sleeps on. It is best so. A sound breaks the stillness. The ship gives a slight heave, and I know that once more the thing is awake. Round the deck it moves, causing the ship to roll perceptibly. Once it goes forward, I fancy to again explore the forecastle. Evidently, it finds nothing, for it returns almost immediately. It pauses a moment at the house, then goes on further aft. Up aloft, somewhere in the fore-rigging, there rings out a peal of wild laughter, though sounding very faint and far away. The horror stops suddenly. I listen intently, but hear nothing save a sharp creaking beyond the after-end of the house, as though a strain had come upon the rigging. A minute later I hear a cry aloft, Followed almost instantly by a loud crash on deck that seems to shake the ship. I wait in anxious fear. What is happening? The minutes pass slowly. Then comes another frightened shout. It ceases suddenly. The suspense has become terrible, and I am no longer able to bear it. Very cautiously, I open one of the afterport covers and peep out to see a fearful sight. There, with its tail upon the deck, and its vast body curled around the mainmast, is the monster, its head above the top sail yard, and its great claw-armed tentacle waving in the air. It is the first proper sight that I have had of the thing. Good heavens, it must weigh a hundred tons. Knowing that I shall have time, I open the port itself, then crane my head out and look up. There, on the extreme end of the lower topsail yard, I see one of the able seamen. Even down here, I note the staring horror of his face. At this moment, he sees me and gives a weak, hoarse cry for help. I can do nothing for him. As I look, the great tongue shoots out and licks him off the yard, much as might a dog a fly off a window pane. Higher still, but happily out of reach, are two more of the men. As far as I can judge, they are lashed to the mast above the royal yard. The thing attempts to reach them, but after a futile effort, it ceases and starts to slide down, coil on coil, to the deck. While doing this, I notice a great gaping wound on its body some twenty feet above the tail. I drop my gaze from aloft and look aft. The cabin door is torn from its hinges, and the bulkhead, which, unlike the half-deck, is of teakwood, is partly broken down. With a shudder, I realize the cause of those cries after the cannon shot. Turning, I screw my head round and try to see the foremast, but cannot. The sun, I notice, is low, and the night is near. Then I draw in my head and fasten up both port and cover. How will it end? Oh, how will it end? After a while, Jockey wakes up. He is very restless, yet, though he has eaten nothing during the day, I cannot get him to touch anything. Night draws on. We are too weary, too dispirited to talk. I lie down, but not to sleep. Time passes. A ventilator rattles violently somewhere on the main deck, and there sounds constantly that slurring, gritty noise. Later, I hear a cat's agonized howl, and then again all is quiet. Sometime after comes a great splash alongside. Then, for some hours, all is silent as the grave. Occasionally, I sit up on the chest and listen, yet never a whisper of noise comes to me. There is an absolute silence. Even the monotonous creak of the gear has died away entirely. And at last, a real hope is springing up within me. That splash. This silence. Surely I am justified in hoping. I do not wake Jockey this time. I will prove first for myself that all is safe. Still, I wait. I will run no unnecessary risks. After a time I creep to the after port and will listen, but there is no sound. I put up my hand and feel at the screw, then again I hesitate, yet not for long. Noiselessly I begin to unscrew the fastening of the heavy shield. It swings loose on its hinge, and I pull it back and peer out. My heart is beating madly. Everything seems strangely dark outside. Perhaps the moon has gone behind a cloud. Suddenly, a beam of moonlight enters through the port and goes as quickly. I stare out. Something moves. Again, the light streams in, and now I seem to be looking into a great cavern, at the bottom of which quivers and curls something palely white. My heart seems to stand still. It is the horror I sit back and seize the iron port flap to slam it to. As I do so, something strikes the glass like a steam ram, shatters it to atoms, and flicks past me into the berth. I scream and spring away. The port is quite filled with it. The lamp shows it dimly. It is curling and twisting here and there. It is as thick as a tree and covered with a smooth, slimy skin at the end is a great claw like a lobster's only a thousand times larger i cower down into the furthest corner it has broken the tool chest to pieces with one click of those frightful mandibles jockey has crawled under a bunk the thing sweeps round in my direction i feel a drop of sweat trickle slowly down my face it tastes salty nearer comes that awful death Crash! I roll over backwards. It has crushed the water breaker against which I leant, and I am rolling in the water across the floor. The claw drives up, then down, with a quick, uncertain movement, striking the deck a dull, heavy blow, a foot from my head. Jockey gives a little gasp of horror. Slowly the thing rises and starts feeling its way round the berth. It plunges into a bunk and pulls out a bolster, nips it in half and drops it, then moves on. It is feeling along the deck. As it does so, it comes across a half of the bolster. It seems to toy with it, then picks it up and takes it out through the port. A wave of putrid air fills the berth. There is a grating sound, and something enters the port again. Something white and tapering and set with teeth. Hither and thither it curls, rasping over the bunks, ceiling and deck, with a noise like that of a great saw at work. Twice it flickers above my head, and I close my eyes. Then, off it goes again. It sounds now on the opposite side of the berth, and nearer to jockey. Suddenly, the harsh, raspy noise becomes muffled, as though the teeth are passing across some soft substance. Jockey gives a horrid little scream that breaks off into a bubbling, whistling sound. I open my eyes. The tip of the vast tongue is curled tightly round something that drips, then is quickly withdrawn, allowing the moonbeams to steal again into the berth. I rise to my feet. Looking round, I note in a mechanical sort of way the wrecked state of the berth, the shattered chests, dismantled bunks, and something else. Jockey, I cry and tingle all over. There is that awful thing again at the port. I glance round for a weapon. I will revenge, jockey. Ah, there, right under the lamp where the wreck of the carpenter's chest strews the floor, lies a small hatchet. I spring forward and seize it. It is small, but so keen. So keen. I feel its razor edge lovingly. Then... I am back at the port. I stand to one side and raise my weapon. The great tongue is feeling its way to those fearsome remains. It reaches them, as it does so, with a scream of, Jockey! Jockey! I strike savagely again and again and again, gasping as I strike. Once more, and the monstrous mass falls to the deck, writhing like a hideous eel. A vast, warm flood rushes in through the porthole. There is a sound of breaking steel and an enormous bellowing. A singing comes in my ears and grows louder, louder. Then the berth grows indistinct and suddenly dark. Extract from the Log of the Steamship Hispaniola June 24, Latitude North, Longitude West, 11 a.m. Sighted, four-masted bark, about four points on the port bow, flying signal of distress. Ran down to her and sent a boat aboard. She proved to be the Glendune, homeward bound from Melbourne to London. Found things in a terrible state: decks covered with blood and slime, steel deck house stove in. Broke open door and discovered youth of about nineteen in last stage of inanition. Also part remains of boy about fourteen years of age. There was a great quantity of blood in the place and a huge curled-up mass of whitish flesh. Weighing about half a ton, one end of which appeared to have been hacked through with a sharp instrument. Found forecastle door open and hanging from one hinge. Doorway bulged as though something had been forced through. Went inside. Terrible state of affairs. Blood everywhere. Broken chests. Smashed bunks. No men nor remains. Went aft again and found youth showing signs of recovery when he came round, gave the name of Thompson, said they had been attacked by a huge serpent, thought it must have been Sea Serpent. He was too weak to say much, but told us there were some men up the mainmast, sent a hand aloft, who reported them lashed to the royal mast and quite dead, went aft to the cabin. Here we found the bulkhead smashed to pieces, and the cabin door lying on the deck near the afterhatch. Found body of captain down lazarette, but no officers. Noticed amongst the wreckage, part of the carriage of a small cannon. Came aboard again. Have sent second mate with six men to work her into port. Thompson is with us. He has written out his version of the affair. We certainly consider that the state of the ship, as we found her, bears out in every respect his story. Signed, William Norton. Master. Tom Briggs. First Mate. Well, that story was first published in 1905. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the stories for this evening. If you have any questions or comments please feel free to reach out to us via our email at bygoneTales at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Tales Podcast. And of course, you can always find us on our website at mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and click on the link for Tales. Each episode has its own comment section, so feel free to drop by and leave a comment. As usual, I would like to mention that our podcast can be subscribed to on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Every review helps get us a little more notoriety, and more notoriety brings more listeners. More listeners ensures that I'm going to keep doing this for a while. Thank you again, and until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare, It's an ebay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. So if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at ebay And check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.